This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. All right, we've got Lauren Miller and Leslie Gonzalez for this. What's going on, ladies? Hey, how are you? We're good. Pretty good. Hey, guys. So like the intro just said, Lauren is the co-founder and CEO of Rust Patrol, which was originally was A76 Yes, we were A76 Technologies and then went through a big rebranding and name change back in 2016. Okay, cool. Let's dive into that. And then Leslie is the global intergalactic product manager <laughs> for... All sales and stuff for Rust Patrol today. So, hey, like uh, Donald, Donald Trump just announced the Space Force. They're going to need uh, Rust products up there. You got to so. use yeah. it for the, for the Space Force. That could, be a, that could be an awesome contract yeah. for exactly. you guys. Yeah, if you thought CEO was a good job title, try Intergalactic Operations <laughs> Manager. <laughs> So like we were, we were just talking before we got on the mic, your journey kind of started at Rice through a, was it a senior project? Was that, was that what you would call it? It was a class project when I was in business school at Rice. They had this class called Technology Entrepreneurship, and it basically takes technologies invented at Rice with business school students and tries to bring them together in order to create viable companies. And they have about 40 different technologies every year that come into that class. You're supposed, they, they whittle it down to about, eight teams. So only about eight of those technologies end up getting used. Each student's supposed to write a little pref list of three technologies they wanted to work on. And I kind of made things difficult for my professors or easy, depending on how mm -hmm. you look at it. I'd seen the side-by-side -side photo showing Rust Patrol against WD-40 and Corrosion X, and then just wrote down Rust Patrol three times on my pref list with a little note to the professor at the bottom of put me on this team or I won't mm -hmm. be in this class anymore. <laughs> Fortunately, they obliged me. <laughs> so was that something you were always interested in or is this something that just kind of caught your eyes? You saw it was a good opportunity? Or? It just immediately caught my eye when I saw this side-by-side -side photo. My family's got a ranch in West Texas. So I grew up as the person who was tasked with going around with a can of WD-40 and spraying things over and over and over and over. And we would use it on everything from ag equipment, our you know, the ranch vehicles, guns, all of it. So I knew what I could immediately do with this. Mm -hmm. Are you from West Texas originally? I'm from Houston, but basically because my dad's biggest pet peeve is idle teenagers, we were out there <laughs> doing things like pulling up fence posts and rolling bales of barbed wire every weekend. So nice. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't exactly how I wanted to spend my weekends in high school, but that's what I got. Good. Hey, Instills good work ethic in you, so it's good, especially being an entrepreneur. So that was in 2007, you said, was when the technology was actually created? The technology was first created in 2007. The inventor is Dr. James Tor. He's an award-winning chemist and professor at Rice University, okay. and he continued to do R&D for nearly a decade, and it was in 2013 that I first got my hands on the technology. Okay, awesome. So how, how does that relationship work with him being the inventor, being a, a chemist at Rice University? Is he still involved with the company? Did you guys? So he still helps us in an advisory capacity. Really, okay. the day-to-day -day is all with us, though. Okay. And that's just part of our agreement with him. Okay. Awesome. So let's talk about those backgrounds a little bit. I'm really intrigued. Obviously, she's got the, the cowgirl thing going on. <laughs> she's uh, bailing hay. <laughs> Leslie, what about yourself? What's your background and how did you get involved? 
Oh, man. <laughs> so I actually graduated with political science, free law, constitution, and criminal law, a triple minor in philosophy, war religions, and management. Wow. She was so slacker in college. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so. I don't want to say you're an overachiever, but it kind of sounds like yeah. you're an overachiever. So, uh, I, just, I loved understanding people, and I loved understanding how people function, why they purchase, why they do what they do, why they believe they, what they believe. Mm -hmm. And so right out of college, I actually was, a, I was working at a retail, and I was like top salesperson at any retail that I was in. And I actually at one point worked at three all at the same time. And same thing, did great in all of them. Um, after that, I became a math teacher. And after that, I became an accountant. Okay. <laughs> and did some legal translation. And then from there, I was just looking to get, an, get a new opportunity. And just uh, something that I've always been intrigued by has been entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. So I used to go to all these conferences for entrepreneurs and try to like invent something or trying to like create something. And I was just like, well, I have nothing that I created, but I love this. Like I love being around people that are creators, that are doing something or that are like, I love the startup. Yeah. So there's an opportunity that opened up at Rust Patrol and I interviewed with Lauren and then from there I was you know we just clicked and and I was and I got really excited so been there ever since <laughs> that's awesome so how did you end up finding Leslie so I found Leslie through one of our former employer employees had referred Leslie to okay. me and I've got to give her some credit so I've managed programs for years ever since I graduated college I've hired hundreds of people and Leslie was the very first person I ever gave an offer to during a phone interview, okay. like the preliminary <laughs> yeah. phone interview. And then I had to kind of walk myself back. I was like, oh, crap. Like, I can't. I need to actually, like, check referrals, be a, <laughs> you know, do this hey, properly. When, when you know, you know, right? Yeah, exactly. But it worked out. It worked out great. And yeah. so, and of course, all of her refer references were glowing references. So that made things really easy. But yeah, she's the first person I've ever hired of hundreds of people from a phone. Interview. Well, it's awesome when you have that feeling like you automatically know that someone's the right fit. That's how Jake and I, when we first met several years ago, we met for lunch. I went home and told my wife, I was like, man, he's gonna be my new best friend. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, right from the brothers. beginning. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna get bunk beds. We're gonna move in together. <laughs> So much room for activities. Yeah, so much yeah. room for activities. Yeah, now our wives get pissed off at how much time we spend together. So so I think this is really interesting hearing a little bit about y'all's backgrounds. And I don't hear too much about oil and gas. So I'm sure that you've had a very steep learning curve coming into oil and gas. You know, oil and gas is a very complex industry. So how how has that been, you know, coming into the market with this product, which looks like a very viable product? What are some of the challenges that you guys have seen with distribution and getting it implemented into oil and gas? Yeah, exactly. As you point out, neither of us really have that background with the oil and gas industry. It was something that when I was in business school and we were working on our original team, it the industry was such an obvious fit, though, for the Rust Patrol products. And really, Rust Patrol was designed for offshore platforms where you're dealing with high humidity, high salinity environments, and, and really what we're dealing with all, all along the Gulf Coast, too. And so that's where leaning on advisors has been a huge aspect for us, of whether that's with our board of directors who are have very strong experience in the oil and gas industry, or even on our original team, one of our team members was his background was all oil and gas and he's still an oil and gas consultant. So that was really helpful. 
And the nice thing about people in Houston is how friendly and helpful they are. (laughs) So it's amazing how many people are just willing to help and help us to learn about our own products and applications and additional areas. It really is. Yeah. You know, Jake and I have both seen this with our companies. Like people will help us and we'll offer to pay them. And like, no, 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 it's fine. It's like, no, really, you're helping me a ton. Let me pay you. I feel like, you know, you just buy me breakfast or something. And it's just wild. I think that's a general theme within oil and gas is just... People are very helpful. They're really friendly. And and then, of course, family, too. My brother works for a pipeline company, and I was working on a bid for coating the interior pipes the other day for a project in Scotland. And my poor brother, he just had surgery, too, and he was recuperating at my parents' house. So I'm sitting there four feet away from him waiting for him to wake up. Because <laughs> I had some very specific industry questions. You know, his eyes start fluttering. Oh, great, I notice you're awake now. <laughs> you can't give him any time off. Huh? That's rough. So, okay, how long have you guys been in business? We know when the technology was created, how long have you actually been trying to implement it in the market? So it was kind of an interesting thing. We, I started working on the business plan in 2013, formally launched the company in 2014. But at that stage, especially for a chemical, you can't just quite go out and start selling. Mm-hmm. We did have some initial sales at that point, which was you know comically embarrassing looking back at it now. Um, <laughs> we, somebody asked us for a gallon and we literally only had a liter in a Nalgene bottle. And I was like, well, I guess I'll sell that to you. <laughs> I didn't even know a price for that. I was like, I don't know, 50 bucks? Hey, a dollar's a dollar. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, looking back, it's so embarrassing. But we really had to spend that first year, that 2014 to 2015, completing the third-party testing. We got a lot of additional property data that was needed for the safety data sheets. So we really went through that part. We were doing the final independent testing just on the performance data as well. And then in 2015, really started pushing it into the market, which as everybody in the oil and gas industry knows, like wonderful time to start a business in that industry (laughs) because we were going out trying to sell and we'd follow up with people and the company was shut down or everybody had been laid off. Or they just laid off 30% of their workforce. Yeah. So that was extremely painful. And what we discovered as a result, though, was we were hearing back from people of, hey, I took the sample home when I got laid off and I've been using it on my car, gun, boat, bike, (laughs) you name it. And it works great. And we were like, oh, well, that's good. So (laughs) we started offering for retail sales in kind of the end of 2015 into 2016. And as a result of that, since A76 meant nothing to anybody, it didn't tell you anything if it's on a retail shelf. We did a whole rebranding process in 2016. Okay. And really been working as Rust Patrol ever since the end of 2016. Yeah, Rust Patrol is a lot more brandable than A76. What yeah. what, what did A76 mean? Nothing. Nothing? <laughs> just <laughs> a vowel and a number? <laughs> Pretty much. The inventor chose it because A, first letter in the alphabet, so you always get listed first, which is true. <laughs> is a good point. And then 76 because it's an easy number for Americans to remember. Yep. Slight challenge, though, of, you know, little company with you know a few resources own 76 lubricants oh yeah <laughs> so yeah they, didn't they, want to go up they, against that yeah, they, from a they probably weren't too yeah too fond of that yeah name. so long yeah. term i don't think that was gonna fly so better to rebrand early on anyways speaking, speaking of going against a company with a lot of resources <laughs> did you guys bootstrap funded tell us a little bit about that 
So we had a very interesting way of going about this. Because of what we were doing, we knew that we weren't going to be able to bootstrap for very long. The testing to launch a chemicals company is extremely onerous. And a big thing, too, is that most of the tests are based on how long you're running them. Well, double-edged sword, our products run really, really long, even in independent tests that are designed to stress them and cause coatings to fail sooner. So that was very expensive. So we knew we were going to have to fundraise. And we did end up signing a term sheet for a Series A in 2014 in summer, right after graduating from business school, and then signed this Series A term sheet for a $2.5 million Series A round of funding in December 2014. You know, a little slight hiccup there of our lead investor didn't actually have the money. <laughs> <laughs> Not something you normally <laughs> expect. Okay. So that left led us into a whole other crazy yeah, situation. We have to stop you there. We're gonna we're gonna dive into this. We're not just gonna let that go. So two and a half million dollar Series A lead investor ghosts on you. Says he doesn't have the money after signing the term sheet. So I mean, this is like official. Not just the term sheet, the Series A document. So we've gone beyond that. Okay. <laughs> and so we've got all of it. I mean, we're just waiting for. $2 million to get transferred because the other 500000 was coming from another small investment group, a NASMARC LLC, some friends and family of mine. And so that funding came in, but we originally, we had to go right out the door with that to the initial inventor payment to secure the technology. So I'm waiting on this $2 million so I can actually start doing everything I want to do. I've got a whole business plan. I've got a strategy. Yeah. And how long was that process? How long were you waiting for that we waited for six months for the money to get transferred yep. which was terrible because at that point you know we're just getting deeper into 2015 as the downturn's going on we're burning cash we're burning we're cash. Like, Where's our a money? little bit of cash we yeah. have we're burning and we're, so we're looking for our funding because we can't do anything until we've got it and so I mean, eventually we just had to cut him out the guy was coming to board meetings and everything and I was begging him I was like look 50,000, 100,000 for good faith. I don't have it. 5,000, 10,000, just something. <laughs> didn't have it. So we were kind of SOL. And I, you know, at that point too, we've lost a year of, we've lost a year of time there. And we'd lost all of the goodwill we had from the Rice Business Plan competition. We had come in second there, but won more than the grand prize winner. So we were walking away with about 600,000 in prizes, not much of which was cash, but enough to let us go for a while. And, but we'd lost all that. I'd been turning away funding offers left and right because we had a signed term sheet and I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to shop it around or anything. I was going to be a good little citizen. Yeah. This is such a good lesson for any listeners that, you know, are aspiring entrepreneurs or want to have a startup. And the thing is, is yeah, you lost out on, you know, the $2 million of funding, but even more important, you lost out on the, the value that comes, you know, just like you said with, with the rice business, what was it? The rice business, rice Alliance? business plan competition. Oh, okay. So you lost out on that. You lost out on any other potential investors. So there's a huge, I mean that, that, you know, just six months out of, out of your business mm -hmm. plan, you know, you start burning cash and that becomes a serious problem. And Jake, we've seen this in Houston with some people, you know, they'll claim to be the money guys that can write a mm -hmm. check, but it turns out, you know, that, they're not the ones that cut a check. They have to go out and raise a fund. What are some things that looking back on it, you think could be done differently 
to do due diligence on an investor because it's something that's hard, especially, you know, when you're the the founder of a company, you don't really have the leverage in a situation when someone says they're going to cut you too. And most entrepreneurs, I would say probably most people are going to be listening. You know, they're the first time entrepreneurs is the first time doing a fundraise. There's a huge steep learning curve there. And so you're not necessarily sure exactly what to do and what not to do. You kind of have to go through and and make these experience these things for yourself. So what, what, what can we kind of give as takeaways for anybody who's kind of listening? So the first thing I recommend to everybody, and I was very involved in the venture and entrepreneurship community in Houston before I was even launching this. I was working at Surge Accelerator at the time. I was working for Silicon Valley Bank. And so I thought I had a good grasp on this. I'd first recommend to everybody that you read Brad Feld's Venture Deals, which is a book. 100%. Yeah, that is a fantastic book. book, Explains all the terms. But another very weird thing that I now have to recommend to people is ask VCs what their basically how much powder do they have in the keg? You know, what is <laughs> what has what does their fund have in terms of resources? Because I didn't think I'd ever have to be asking, hey, you're a VC. Do you actually have money? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of startup thing. founders don't ask enough questions of VCs or angel investors. I think that, you know, as a founder you do have the responsibility of doing due diligence on anyone that you're taking money from because you don't just want to take money from, even if they do have the money, you don't want to take money just from anybody. You want to make sure that it's a good fit. So Yeah, it's really important. And we walked, I mentioned we won about 600000 in funding from the Rice Business Plan competition. Uh, some of that was equity investment. And we walked away from a lot of it because it was not a good fit with one of the guys. And this is a his words verbatim to one of my rice professors where we're, we're not going to invest in the company if she's the CEO, cause a woman can't run a company in that mm. industry, which like, That's, uh, I've got, I've it got, was 2014. <laughs> come on. I've got, I've got, <laughs> so, I, I, I'm really... <laughs> glad you just told that story because that's definitely a topic I want to get into is that we just, I mean, in business general and entrepreneurship, there's not a lot of women but even more so in oil and gas. I mean, I could probably count on one yeah. hand the the amount of women that I know. So really interested in that. And it's that's just an incredible challenge that you have to get over. Not only is it hard enough to get a, a cut check or a check cut from venture capitalists, but then you put on that layer of you're a woman. Yeah. And, and it, that, it's, it's a just very incredibly, weird. <laughs> it's weird to me. Yeah, but, and I don't know if you know the statistic. The one that still gets thrown around a lot is that only 4% of companies that have any sort of funding, whether that's loans or VC, are women-owned or women-led. The other 90% are all male-led. So that is a whole other challenge. And you end up with these weird questions. Like, never once did – my co-founder is a guy – never once did he get asked of when he was planning to have kids, which – of the two of us, I have no kids, and he's got a, I guess, two-year-old daughter now. Mm-hmm. Never once did he get that question, but I got that in a ton of meetings, what my plans were for having kids. Are you serious? Yeah. So, okay. Which, women, if you're fundraising and somebody asks you that, like, just leave. It's not going anywhere. No. It's not going to materialize. No, you're not, you're not obligated to answer no. questions like that. <laughs> well, it, it, it's crazy. I have three kids myself, and I talk to this about my wife all the time. You know, we, we just talk about the topic of women and, and business, and I talk about that. I say, it does affect because venture capitalists, investors are worried about, are you going to have kids and all of a sudden, you know, abandon, abandon the business or is it going to take away time from the business? So people, you know, 
that that's just the rationale for it. But yeah. I've never actually heard of someone straight up asking you, when are you planning on having kids? What, well, what's, what's your life schedule? Women are yeah. extremely <laughs> capable while they're pregnant. And even after they have kids, to still continue running an organization. Oh, yeah. 100%. One of my good friends had a baby lo- last October. And within two weeks, she was back at work mm-hmm. just yeah. She had stuff to do. She's running a business. She's got stuff to my do. My wife my wife is a stay at home mom, homeschools our three kids who are under the age of seven, and she she's works remotely for three startups from home. I mean, like women are fucking like It'd be amazing I, how well we can multitask. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I'll give you all y'all's props because you're way better at actually executing and taking care of business than men. We've are actually generally. talked about building up like this army of stay at home moms to do like just VA well, work. Yeah. yeah. Because they're like the biggest hustlers. They just want to be a part of something. No, you, you they know talk how to about, execute. You want to talk about statistics. I can't cite the, the exact number off the top of my head, but Harvard did a, a review and a study and found that they sent out like 3000 fake resumes and found that women had almost no chance if they took off from maternity leave and, you know, they took a couple of years to raise their baby, had almost no chance of getting hired on with whatever position they were applying for. Yeah, it's And it's just, it's, it's, it's wild to me. But even more so when you're actually the founder of a company, you're going to raise capital. You know, the, the deck's already stacked against you most of the time. It's already hard enough. And then you just put that layer on top. And It's kind of ridiculous. I mean, I can understand if you're terminally ill or if you're in your 80s and you're potentially going to die you're like morbidly obese or something like that like those would be red flags or you're like smoking like a chimney you're constantly coughing up a lung but being a woman is not one of those red flags yeah exactly so have you have you found any funds or venture capitalists that are kind of like focused on women-led companies like i know there's a bunch in silicon valley i saw like new york i don't know about in town i know like capital factory in austin was doing something I saw on Twitter that was women only focused. Yeah, there's more and more initiatives now. And actually, just one thing I'm going to bring up real quick is actually coming up at the end of this month is a women's startup weekend. It's called Start Here Now. And it's open to the public too on Sunday, September 30th, the closing ceremony where all the women who are participating are giving their final pitches is open to the public so anybody can go buy tickets at startherenow.org. You can use a promo code SHN-LM and I'll get a discount on the ticket as well. Awesome. And where's that at? It's going to be over at Rice at okay. the at Lily the Lou Idea Lou Idea Lab or for entrepreneurship and innovation. I'm <laughs> yeah, I won't, that, I won't hold you to. Yeah, we'll, we'll put Start it in the show notes. Startherenow.org <laughs> has the information. Uh, but it's great that there are these initiatives trying to get women to to build their businesses. And what's really interesting too. This goes to another volunteer effort that I get involved with is the Prison Entrepreneurship Organization. And because it's really hard for convicts entering society Wasn't to Wasn't I just talking about this yesterday, yesterday on the way home yeah. from lunch? I was just talking about it's that. It's really hard for people mm-hmm. who want to start over to get any sort of employment. People immediately see that they've been to prison and just discount them. And a lot of times these are people who are hard workers and actually just have a good business sense. Yeah, I went on a rant yesterday about our systematic yeah. issues that we have. Um, and it's where, a huge issue. Yeah, it is. It is really big. And so the Prison Entrepreneurship Program teaches convicts how to start a business. And so they've been working with men for years now, and they've just launched, they've grown, and they've launched a women's program as well at the Lockhart facility. And I was talking with the CEO or the former CEO of PEP, and he was telling me that with the women, 
they're having to get them, no, think bigger, you know, scale this. This is a great idea. And it, he was saying it was so interesting comparing that with the men where they're like, okay, let's be a little realistic. And then the women, they're like, no, like, this is a great idea. You can make a ton of money at this. Like, go for it. And that's what's funny is women often kind of hold themselves back. And so that's where I'm always like, no, go for it. You can do this. Like, yeah, a man wouldn't let that stop him. Yeah. Yeah, limiting your beliefs of what you can do. Um, yeah, it's a, you know, I think that's what kills a lot of entrepreneurs is not entrepreneurs is not thinking big enough and thinking that they can take an idea and scale it to something yeah. massive. And really, it applies to everybody. It's not women specific. There's a ton of people who, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever reason, they think they can't do it. And I'm going. What's the worst that happens? You fail. Yeah. <laughs> like honestly, like once once you accept that yeah. as the worst case scenario then you really have nothing keeping you from doing whatever you want because once you accept the worst case scenario, like, hey, I failed, then yeah. all right. Well, I think most things about entrepreneurship are usually like 10 to 100 times harder than you expect them to be. Yeah. And so you kind of out of necessity have to shoot super, super big because it's going to take you so much longer to get there than you possibly think. Mm-hmm. That's what's Good funny point. when VCs are looking at financial projections. Because, yeah, to be an entrepreneur, you basically got to be an optimist and somewhat self-deluded. And <laughs> so you always make these projections and every VC looks at them and is like, it's going to be a half to a third of that, but okay. <laughs> I think if you have uh, big, big dreams or you're a co-founder entrepreneur, you have to be a bit delusional at times yeah. because there's no way a fucking sane person could go through what <laughs> no. you do in the day to day. So, <laughs> yeah. And it's funny too, because you've also got to like when you're first thinking about it, disassociate yourself somewhat from the reality of what it's going to be. Like CEO sounds like a lofty title and yeah, maybe you're doing, board level stuff or talking, you know, doing an interview, for example, for a podcast at some point of the day. But at the end of the day, you might also be the one to go in there and scrub the toilets. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. People never talk about that side. Like they, they see the glamorous side. And I think Instagram yeah. and, and like YouTube is kind of like ruined some of this for some people because they have 100%. these 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 preconceived they, they want a fucking they want like, a Lambo with a laptop <laughs> out on the beach and I'm like man I, I don't know any CEO that lives like that <laughs> none that have businesses that are scaling at least or that are not a part of an MLM yeah or some, or some, or some sort yeah so there's it's definitely like I think entrepreneurship can be described as it's either like pure bliss or just extreme agony it's like it's one one or the other. And there's usually nothing in between. It's like everything's absolutely falling apart. You're like, wow, everything is going so great. And it usually can vary like even within the same day. It depends. Unless you are in an MLM and, and then it's, <laughs> yeah. you really are delusional. Get out of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah really, you know, it, it depends on depends on the day, what, what emotions you're going through. And, you know, I made that video on LinkedIn talking about as a entrepreneur, you have to control your emotions because, you know, you'll go through peaks and valleys. Someday you'll, you'll feel like you're on top of the world. And the next day it's like, shit, we're not making any progress. So what are, what are some of the biggest challenges that y'all are going through right now as a company trying to grow? So right now it's, uh, it's exactly that it's growth. It's building out our distribution model. It's growing sales. It's really interesting as a startup, the challenge just to get in the door with a lot of places Mm -hmm. because people haven't heard of you. They don't know what you are as far as when I say, you know, I'm with rest patrol. Oh, cool. Never heard of it. Not going to answer your call. Not going to answer your email. And it's really frustrating because you know that you've got something where you can 
demonstrate quantitatively, like I'm going to save you millions every year. <laughs> Just let me show this to you. And so you've really got to fi- come come up with ways to get around that. So that's really what we're working on right now is the marketing is growing the sales and making people aware of that. Cause I can point out to specific case studies and be like, look with this company, just by changing products, nothing else, I could save them two times on the cost of their coatings and six times on the cost of their labor. Like that is a lot of labor hours Mm -hmm. they can be using for way more profitable activities than just Mm -hmm. rust. Yeah. The way I explain it to people is that Rust Patrol is in their own category because there is none like it. So it's the only one out there in the market that can do, that's a lubricant, that's a penetrant, it's a moisture displacer, all three things in just one product versus having to buy so many or multiple things at a time just to get that one, you know, what we do. So kind of, but because we, I would say that we are in our own category, it's, hard because people are like, okay, well, you need something to compare it to. So then we have to compare it to WD-40. But then when you go there, you're basically comparing yourself to a big guy. Yeah. And not only that, you're comparing yourself to a known brand. Yep. So like how Lauren was talking about, an unknown brand coming up to people like, hey, like you don't understand, like our product can literally save you money, save you time. But it's like, it's kind of like having the cure for cancer. And then people are just kind of like, no, I don't want it. Because <laughs> yeah. well, I've well, never heard of he, you. Or it so. sounds too good to be Human, true. Humans so just they... naturally are resistant to change, yeah. right? So, yeah. but it is, you know, you bring up that point and, you know, I broke out in the oil field roughnecking on drilling rigs and I'd always have a can of WD-40 and a can of PB blaster, you yeah. know, two, two different, you know, use cases for both of them. And so, you know, if you go try to compare it to a WD-40, you know, you're going up against that big name and it's like, well, we're not really comparable to WD-40 yeah. because we do everything. So that's, that is one hard thing, especially in oil and gas, is when you have a technology that's not comparable to anything else, you have to go over that barrier of getting their mind wrapped around that. It's, a, it's, a really, it's a really big barrier to cross. And we've experienced this with some of our companies as well. For example, there's a, there's a book called 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. It's a small little book. It's a great book. Best book out there. There's my Donald Trump impersonation. Lots of great rules. Um, <laughs> and and one, of the, one of the rules that they have in there is that don't compete, create a new category like you just talked about. And that is, I think that was one of the things that we had done with Wellhub was kind of creating this entirely new category. We weren't oil and gas software. We were something entirely new. And I think that's great to differentiate yourself from, from what's out there. But at the same time, People in oil and gas are not very creative. And if they have nothing to compare it to, then it's like you kind of almost have to fall back into that. And so it's a it's a really fine line to walk on the marketing and positioning perspective for anything that's like a radically new type of technology or, or product. Just to add to it as well, like testing, it takes a long time. So a lot of these big oil and gas companies are like, hey, so we want you to test it out. And it's like, okay, well, that's great. Or we'll give them products so that way they mm-hmm. can test it out. But by the time that they're done with their testing, it's about a year, you know, mm-hmm. anywhere from a year, like to three years. So then we're looking at the products like, too okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> it's really a double-edged really sword <laughs> because everybody wants to test it because like, no, it sounds too good to be true. And we're like, oh, no, try it out. Hoping that, you know, when they see after two weeks that we're whooping the pants off somebody else, like CRC <laughs> or anything like that. They'll be like, okay, great. But they always want to see when it fails, which is such a double-edged sword when you've got a product that takes a really long time to fail because then you're just wait. It's kind of a hurry up and wait situation. 
So that's a huge challenge for us. Yeah, when it takes over a year to stress test it to make oh, it yeah. fail, it's, yeah, it's a long <laughs> Obviously, cycle. a lot of people that are listening are in oil and gas. So let's dive into like, so what are the different use cases within oil and gas? So there are so many use cases and that's another kind of double-edged sword for us is trying not to spread ourselves too thin because our products can be used upstream, midstream, downstream, kind of you name it. If you've got bare steel, any rotating equipment, mothballed or idle equipment, any parts mm-hmm. in storage, that's a huge application for us. So that if you've got a part that's in storage, if you're either a manufacturer or any sort of operator, that way you can go to get something and you know it's in pristine condition and it's going to work. And so that's a huge application for us. But then also because of the multi-purpose aspects of the lubrication, the penetration, maintenance too. Mm -hmm. It can either help to free stuck parts and, you know, like a bolt on a offshore rig or you protect it when you're putting something in. Another thing too, lubrication, keep things moving. Mm Mm-hmm. So tons of application for us, even just around a refinery on the vehicles or the bikes that get used there. I mean, that's another application. I'm headed over to a refinery in an hour or so just for those very things. Yeah, it's kind of mind-blowing how many applications there would actually... I mean, oil and gas is extremely mechanical. Yeah. <laughs> Rust is very, very common in all sectors yeah. of oil and gas. Yeah, so. and the, kind of the, that's sort of the beauty for us is it's a multi-billion dollar problem in the oil and gas industry. It's estimated that the direct spend on on corrosion in the oil and gas industry is about $2.7 billion. Wow. So it's a huge cost. But it's also, it's also a very big problem for you, too, because... As we like to say, you can't boil the ocean. So yeah. it's like, where do you where do you start out to find you know the quickest uh, penetration into the market mm-hmm. instead of trying to attack everything here, here, and there, and then you get spread thin and it becomes a problem too. So what do y'all see? You know, is, is upstream more of your focus right now? Do you have a preference of where you guys are kind of attacking? So upstream now that the now that the oil industry is bouncing back has kind of been what our original plan was for the company, and it's becoming more feasible again too. So we will plan to continue to grow that part of the market, as well as the manufacturers who are selling to upstream applications. You know, that just you know. Mm-hmm. That being said, we're still working quite a bit with midstream and downstream. As I mentioned, I'm going to refinery shortly. I was working on a bid for a pipeline mm-hmm. the other day, but upstream was originally what our target was. So that's where we're kind of refocusing again. Another thing too, is that with the upstream companies and with a lot of the oil field equipment manufacturers, they're the ones who are more willing to actually try some new products too, from our experience. Okay. You mentioned resistance to change and it is incredible. People are very resistant to change and to trying new products. And the one that always makes me laugh is when we were talking about rust patrol to one company and the guy said well we've been using the same product for 60 years (laughs) and if you think about that it's like okay think about that in terms of phones like that's comparing the rotary phone to the iphone (laughs) these are not comparable things and that's really what we were talking about with him in terms of the technology for corrosion prevention too like He's basically using the rotary phone and we're walking in with an iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wow, you've been using it for 60 years. 60 years has been like, I want you to repeat what you just said. <laughs> yeah. You've been using it for 60 years. Okay. That's, that's the problem. I think mm-hmm. culturally, not only is there like people are resistant to change, but I think there's also, I think there's a lot of negligence in oil and gas. And I think it's one of the only industries that I've seen in the world where you can identify that there's a huge problem that could save them billions of dollars and people won't actually act on it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so do you see, do you see that as well to where some people just like, ah, it's like corrosion. It just happens. Like we don't really care. We'll eat the cost. 
Yeah, there's a lot of, and it always amazes me because there's a ton of areas where people think exactly that. They're like, oh, it's just, you know, it's corrosion. Rust happens. Rust doesn't have to happen. Basic corrosion preventative programs could save 30 to 35% of the cost of corrosion. And just think about that in terms of dollars. I mean, that's billions of dollars every year. And that's just simple maintenance and simple preventative measures. It's the classic, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And mm-hmm. that's really what we're working and trying to push people on. And it goes to that in terms of the oil and gas industry, but we do see that elsewhere too. People do that just at home. So that's where we're also working on that. The one industry where it's funny, I've seen people be really proactive for prevention is farm and ag. And I guess that's because it's somebody who is actually owning the equipment, operating they own the equipment. It, operate it, yeah, yeah they're touching it, it every yeah. step of the that way. That was one of the things that I was looking at y'all's Instagram, which by the way, looks great. So if you guys wanted to check that out, it was just at Rust Patrol, right? Yeah, we're just Rust yeah. Patrol on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Yeah. And I saw like you guys had like some John Deere's and stuff on there. And I was like, yeah. the first person I know that I could tell about this would be my dad because he's got a farm out in East Texas. Mm-hmm. And like these guys take so much pride in their tractors and all of their tools and like everything is meticulous and clean. And, and they're like, dealing with the headaches too. Yeah. And so that's what's always good for us is if we can talk to the person, and this goes back to the oil and gas industry, if we talk to the person who's actually dealing with it, they are immediately on board because using the farm yeah. and ag, hooking up, the PTO hookup on a tractor is just a massive headache for pretty much anybody who touches a tractor. Mm-hmm. So when we can point out to them, uh, hey, if you spray rust patrol on this, it's going to knock out all that gunk that's built up there and make it easier to use for the future. They're like, okay, like where's my wallet? Let's do this. <laughs> because it's a huge headache. And so really that's why we have to target a bunch of different people in the oil and gas industry. And this is something to keep in mind for other startups is who you have to actually speak with. So we have to work with the distributors. We have to work with the purchasing department because they actually buy it. But it's just as important for us to deal with the engineering and the the testing and the maintenance people who are mm-hmm. going to actually handle it. Because when we get those people on board, they get they get real excited. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of you know coming from oil and gas service background, like just kind of the attitude in oil and gas is just run your equipment into the ground. You know, <laughs> it's the oil and oil and gas industry. It's gonna you know be shit in two to three years and you'll get mm-hmm. a you'll get a new pump or new whatever you know power tongs whatever it is and that's just always the way it's been there's not a lot of maintenance done you know at least in the upstream sector on equipment now obviously there's outliers to that you know there, there's companies that do but yeah it's kind of it's always blown my mind i'm like hey you know if we actually like took care of our equipment and like repainted things and had some preventative measures then well i mean i think a lot of the some of these people just see it as like oh like it looks prettier hey it runs a little better but really comes down to like downtime Mm -hmm. right and what is the lost opportunity cost whether it's in production or whether it's in rig time or something like that or if it's in downstream if you're doing a turnaround if a refinery is down, you're losing like tens of millions of dollars a day, you know? And so if you're able to extend the life of some of the machinery and some of the stuff there. And avoid be, that unplanned exactly, downtime too. Cause yeah. okay. Yeah. I get that there's the turnaround cycles and there's the planned downtime, but when you've got a part fail and then you've got some unplanned maintenance going on, I mean, that's yeah. Just cost upon cost upon cost. Yeah. So on the retail side, so what are some of the other applications? I was looking at you guys, like it's like automotive, it's guns, it's a lot of yeah. cool stuff. <laughs> yeah. So that's what was funny was, as I mentioned, the reason we originally got into retail yeah. was because of 
laid off oil and gas workers taking our <laughs> products home. So they use it on their guns. Everybody's found out that it's okay. significantly better than anything else on the market. Cuts down cleaning time, makes everything easier to use for the future. They don't have to worry about weapons getting fingerprinty, which is the corrosion from the salt on your hands. Automotive, we sell a ton in the Midwest for coating undercarriage of vehicles to mm -hmm. protect from salt on the roads, yep. as well as just general maintenance on in automotive applications, a lot for transportation. Trailer hitches and lift gates in particular for any <laughs> truck drivers are a huge headache. In the auto in the retail applications, you just kind of name one after another. Stainless steel inside the house is a big one. People can which is wipe down their fridge, their stainless steel fridge, stainless steel dishwasher on the outside. Mm -hmm. And when they wipe it down with rust patrol, they keep it from getting that splotchy fingerprint look, mm -hmm. which is, again, technically corrosion. So there's all sorts of applications, which is nice for us. Bike chains, you name it. Yes, I'm yeah. looking at Yale's Instagram right now, and I like the branding. And I don't want to dive too too deep into this, but I do have an e-commerce bug in me. I'm an investor <laughs> in some e-commerce brands. So what is what is this side of the business look like? You know, when you guys are, you know, you're busy trying to scale the oil and gas uh, commercial applications, what does the consumer side look like? I see that you sell on Amazon, so I'm assuming you're using Amazon FBA for distribution and sales. How How is it juggling all of that? So we did an interesting thing last year is we basically outsourced all of our sales and marketing. We partnered with a company called Mass Management out of North Carolina, and they have a long background in the retail industry. They That's what kind of what they do is take new products to market. Mm. And they have a very interesting strategy of basically build a solid foundation with independent retailers, of which there's, I believe, about 35,000 independent retail stores in the U.S. Sell through these co-ops in which they buy and the dealers. And that gives you a good base. Helps you to work out your supply chain. You can start working at some scale. And also, if you happen to lose one of those customers, that's not as detrimental to if you were to lose all of Home Depot, for yeah. example. <laughs> Next, then, is the smaller chains. That's the small, still big, like O'Reilly's, AutoZone, Tractor Supply. So that's going to be kind of our next step. And again, that just, you know, working, we'll start working at scale, getting that really refined, building the brand further, and then getting on to the big box retailers, your Walmart, Home Depot, Lowe's. And so what it will do is give us far more ability to negotiate when we get to that level because retail stores measure how many turns you do each year of inventory. And so if Home Depot is telling us, hey, you know, store in Dallas is only doing one turn a year, we'll be able to go, okay, that may be the case, but that's not on us because this tiny town, I don't know, maybe it's in like Amish country because we sell for a lot of Amish stores, is doing four turns a year. So that means there's no advertising to those customers whatsoever. That's a town serving 300 people. And if they're doing that many turns, that's not on us. So yeah. we can avoid having to do buybacks or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, it's very interesting dynamic for you guys because, you know, it's already hard enough scaling into commercial applications in oil and gas, but then you got to 
on the other hand, balance the uh, consumer side too. So just equally just, as challenging. Yeah, just more, yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting a, a product into especially you know uh, stores across the nation, it's not a small task. So no. it's really interesting though, using that uh, distributor though, leveraging what they have, their network, and getting it into all those smaller exactly. stores. We leverage that model, and then something too, and this may be applicable for other oil and gas startups, is looking for backdoor ways to get into the oil and gas industry. Mm-hmm. What we found is that a lot of folks in the oil and gas industry are really into their trucks or cars or their guns. Hundred percent true. <laughs> like it was hilarious at OTC yeah. this last year. A guy was walking by our booth and then just yeah. stopped and bought a bought a can because he heard the word gun. Yeah. When he was just, he just happened to hear it as he walked by. Have, have you ever spent any time in Midland, Texas? Yes, I have. All, all, all it is is guns and trucks. So, <laughs> and that's what yeah, West Texas. I you know on the ranch growing up, yeah. I grew up. We're driving around with a bunch of guns and hunting off the back of the truck. So yeah, yeah, that's a very backdoor way. Just uh, it's like, all right, we just got to penetrate the market of the rednecks and then we'll bring it to the oil and gas industry. (laughs) That was kind of a backdoor way to get in for us. And then similarly for, you know, people using it at work, they can take it home. So we kind of try and cross between those two as well. Very good. So what's like the end goal for you guys? What do you, I mean, I, obviously, you know, if you've raised funding, you've kind of had an exit strategy. Is it an acquisition? Is it an IPO? Is it add new types of solutions? <laughs> it's a kind of a combination of two of those things. Okay. I would be very happy if I never have to be the CEO of a public company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That just sounds extremely painful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Since we're venture backed and we are currently raising a series B round of funding, the plan right now is to grow and eventually to be acquired. We recognize mm-hmm. that, especially having taken on funding as what will occur. Mm-hmm. As we raise our series B, we're going to also plan to start an R and D arm and to throw out more technologies. When we bought the technology from the inventor, we really have only ever commercialized three of the formulas. We've got a whole binder of formulations in R&D <laughs> that we have done nothing with. Wow, really? Yeah, we just haven't had the resources yet because of what we were doing initially getting start started. Yeah. So with this Series B round of funding, we're going to actually start our R&D function and expand on our current product line, look to add some complementary products as well. Very cool. Yeah, that's, that's awesome that you already have a binder full of formulas. Now you just gotta go, gotta go into the lab, whip them up, and then test them. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So that's what we're in an interesting spot from an R and D perspective. Of we have a ton done, and we're gonna yeah, basically it'll just be testing these and some of the formulas because would actually already probably be ready to just mm-hmm. be launched with some further refinement. The inventor was looking very specifically to create something like Rust Patrol. So it Rust Patrol is designed to be a multi-purpose product for the offshore oil and gas industry or for the Gulf Coast oil mm-hmm. and gas industry. Mm-hmm. But that being said, there were other things along the way that were developed. Yeah. Dry coatings, hard coatings, and those could could be launched in a variety of other applications too yeah i feel like you guys would be like a great partner with like a corporate venture capital fund who has a laboratory that you guys could leverage for like r&d and stuff like somebody like an equinor i think halliburton has one as well slumberjay guys like that mm-hmm. because it's something that they would actually use internally obviously but then they have this huge facility that and that's part of part of like you know if they come in and invest you know it's contingent yeah, do y'all have like any internally. let's talk about that do you have preferences on who you partner up with in so your a strategic venture firm so that's exactly 
essentially the corporate yeah. arm of a the corporate VC arm from large, particularly large oil and gas company or a company like GE, for example, mm-hmm. that would be a great partner for us because they have the way to launch it within the company. Yeah. Early on, when we did our first fundraising, one thing that we did learn and with one corporate VC group, we realized that we weren't going to be able to work together because they have to have a carve out on a on a use for the technology. And their carve out would have been protecting stored equipment, which was 90% of our business for the industrial side. So we were like, that's not going to really work <laughs> yeah, for either of us. But that being said, other other VC groups don't necessarily have that same carve out. And so mm-hmm. those will be the perfect kind of partners for us. And it, that's what really we want is a strategic partner who can help us to launch it within the company and further within the industry too. Well, so any, any, so if for investors listening, who's your ideal investor? Obviously we said the CVCs, anybody else, anybody who brings more knowledge on the retail side, oil and gas side, anybody that just has money. Yeah. You've got to have money. That's going to, you know, I'm a little picky about that now, but it's funny having gone through raising a series, a round of funding, there's a lot that you learn from that. And Something that with the investors who we do currently have, a great thing about them is they do bring knowledge to the table. And that's really something we want. An empty check isn't going to help us to actually achieve anything. So somebody who has actual experience in the industry and with the products like Rust Patrol is going to be a perfect type of partner because they have the, they have some knowledge to bring to the table too. And it, I mean, you really can't quantify that. That that has significant value. And that's something that startups should always be aware of mm-hmm. is not just taking any check they could get, but taking a good partner too. Absolutely. Yeah. Fan, yeah. yeah. It's hundred percent. Sometimes that's even more important than the, than the actual check. You know, it's what else you actually contribute to the team. Yeah. Cause if you take a check and no knowledge, yeah. you're not honestly, you're not getting any further. Yeah. And more of a headache down the road. Yeah. And you're going to be the one having to educate your investor, which is you're just going to be creating conflict if that's the case. So working with somebody where everybody's aligned and is aware of what they're wanting to achieve and can work together for that makes things so much smoother. Yeah. Definitely. So how can everybody find you guys? Obviously, we said on Instagram is at Rust Patrol. Website's probably RustPatrol.com. RustPatrol.com is the website. And we've got a store locator on there, too. So folks can find a distributor near them. They can always reach out to us at sales at RustPatrol.com. And you guys are on LinkedIn, right? We're on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, we got Twitter as well. Just Rust Patrol is the... Thing searches as awesome. <laughs> I know I'm really I'm really excited to see what you ladies are going to do. I think it's it's fantastic how far you've came. We'd love to hear your story, and we're wishing you guys all the best moving forward. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks for being on. Thank you guys. Go, go, go.